0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to
1: patient care. Hello, my name is Evan Rotar. I'm a first-year resident at the University of Virginia in the Integrated Thoracic Surgery Program. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Tribble regarding his thoughts on the management of a patient with critical aortic stenosis who experiences hemodynamic collapse prior to starting the case. Dr. Tribble is a professor of thoracic and cardiovascular surgery and the associate program director of the thoracic surgery residency program at the University of Virginia. He's been practicing thoracic and cardiovascular surgery for over 30 years, and his practice has included not only adult cardiac surgery, but heart and lung transplantation, ventricular assist devices, and for many years, all aspects of vascular surgery. We'll start with a clinical scenario. A 72-year-old man with critical aortic stenosis scheduled for an elective AVR is in the operating room, and after obtaining the usual vascular access, is being induced by anesthesiologist for his operation when he rapidly decompensates hemodynamically. How would you deal with this situation?
0: So this is not a terribly common scenario, but it certainly will happen for people uh, during their careers. There's no doubt about that. I think just to take a step back from the actual hemodynamic collapse, I think we'll assume that this particular patient had been properly worked up and had been considered as an appropriate candidate for the artery valve replacement. And though it's a bit beyond the scope of this particular conversation, uh, I think it's important for people to remember that during the obtaining of informed consent for this patient in this situation, a discussion about the potential for instability while the patient be induced for uh, anesthesia it, that could require a rapid institution of cardiopulmonary bypass. More pertinent to this particular discussion, uh, the reality of this potential for hemodynamic collapse must also be discussed with the entire OR team, preferably well before the operation. So there's some things that should be considered in this situation that might be done differently than for a more routine or likely stable situation one is obtaining reliable femoral arterial access early in the process perhaps with local anesthesia mild sedation but prior to intubation recognizing the value of having this type of access prior to the sometimes significant instability that can occur with intubation and induction of anesthesia in a patient with critical aortic stenosis. You have to think about other analogous situations that might be similar to this, such as a tight left main coronary stenosis, acute aortic insufficiency, or an acute aortic dissection. Next, the team could consider the possibility, at least, of placing an intra balloon pump at some point prior to anesthetic induction Intuitary balloon pumps were used more commonly in the past, uh, and there, there were even some institutions that used them routinely for almost all adult cardiac surgery, but their use uh, is much less common now. It's worth also thinking about the possibility of having a femoral venous catheter in place, which could facilitate inserting a femoral venous cannula to facilitate rapid institution of cardiopulmonary bypass I do think that it's good to have the arterial line in one groin and the venous line in the other groin, both for ease of access on the front end and uh, safety for removal uh, at uh, an appropriate time later. I do believe the best combination for these canines is to have the femoral venous line on the right side and the arterial line on the left, as it's easier to get a femoral venous cannula up to the right atrium from the right thermal vein than it is from the left. That is because the left iliac vein has to cross under the right iliac artery to get to the vena cava and this can occasionally impair the passage of a venous cannula from the left. Another thing to consider is the possibility of prepping uh, in some manner uh, the patient prior to induction to facilitate rapid entry into the chest should that be needed and uh, that can be discussed with the team early in the, uh, um, in the day. It's worth remembering that the reasons for the potential instability in a patient like this during anesthetic induction relates to two things. One is the uh, vasodilatation that can occur with the administration of most anesthetic agents and the impairment of venous return that aco- can accompany the institution
1: of positive pressure ventilation Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. So related to these issues, I think it would be important to talk about what some essential steps would be prior to starting. And what are your thoughts on the preparation beforehand and and what should be incorporated in either the preoperative timeout or in the case discussion with the team prior to going back to the operating room?
0: That's That's a great question and appropriate, I think, to pay even more attention to those preparations in the cases that are potentially unstable. However, you could make a case for having uh, many of these uh, arrangements made in, in most cases. But of course, they will include assuring that all the equipment and supplies that will be needed for the operation are uh, in the room and are easily available. Uh, I think it's also important that everyone on the t- operating room team, including an attending anesthesiologist, the entire surgical team, The nursing team and the perfusionists need to be in the room as uh, this period of potential instability uh, approaches. While conducting timeouts has become routine in virtually all operations, uh, the usual tradition uh, will have that timeout happening pretty close to the time for the incision However, some of the things that should be thought about in a case like this really need to be discussed before that because of the possibility of instability with the induction of anesthesia. Therefore, whether it's called an, an official timeout or a huddle or just a, a gathering of the team, uh, one way or another, a discussion of that sort is really important, not only to review the plan and the availability of personnel, blood products, and supplies, but also to review the steps that might be taken if the patient does become unstable. I think it is important to for the surgical team who perhaps is more familiar with the potential risk of, of hemodynamic collapse with the induction of anesthesia to uh, be sure that the anesthesia team does understand, number one, this risk, and number two, how some of the things that they might do can help Uh, lessen the chance of that problem such as maybe giving a little more volume before you start the uh, uh, induction of anesthesia maybe considering some form of awake intubation with mild sedation transient continuation of spontaneous ventilation which would have fewer hemodynamic consequences than positive pressure ventilation and uh it's worth reiterating that some thought could be given to uh starting to create a sterile field for the eventual sternotomy which could be used if hemodynamic
1: deterioration does occur early. That's all really important to keep in mind and I think that's some great points. Revisiting our clinical scenario, if we have taken all that into consideration and the patient does collapse hemodynamically, what are the steps that we're going to need to do to quickly access the chest and really where do we go from here?
0: So first of all the goal of the surgical team is to get the patient on cardiopulmonary bypass as quickly as possible because once you've done that you've regained control of the situation. It would be easy to forget to uh, get the patient properly anticoagulated under these circumstances. So. Part of every discussion would be with the anesthesiologists, with the surgeons, with the perfusionists, to be sure that the pump dose of heparin is given as soon as you know you're going to have to get on bypass urgently. And that point really cannot be overemphasized. You cannot start the patient on cardiopulmonary bypass without the patient being adequately anticoagulated. I think it's reasonable uh, when you have something that's that important to tell a specific person like one of the perfusionists perhaps to be in charge of remembering to call for the anticoagulation and for a check of the activated clotting time, the ACT, uh, after the heparin has been administered to be sure that it is actually circulated. The next thing to consider is the degree of hemodynamic compromise will dictate whether peripheral cannulation can or should be undertaken or whether there is enough instability to require the need to move expeditiously to do a sternotomy, in which case you would want to cannulate centrally. Another factor in that equation uh, would be, of course, if you have enough hands on deck, people in the surgical team could do both at once. Some surgeons could be uh, working on getting into the chest while others could be uh, cannulating the two groins uh, with some audibles being called at that line of scrimmage about which will be the most expeditious way to get the patient on bypass. Again, the uh, senior members of the surgical team need to be present and the most senior person needs to issue most of the directions to the rest of the team I think it's really important to emphasize that there needs to be an air or an atmosphere of calm deliberate uh, instruction given while focusing on the tasks uh, at hand and that communication should always follow the call and response or closed loop format with each request or command being acknowledged by the appropriate team member that is going to carry out that request Again, it's worth noting, if anyone from all those various teams is not actually in the room as the clinical situation deteriorates, someone needs to be in charge of rounding
1: up all those people uh, to be sure that they are uh, on their way. Having highlighted all of that, what are the steps that need to be taken to get into the chest expeditiously?
0: Well, it shouldn't take very much time to be thinking about sterility, but it is worth giving uh, at least some thought to how you can create and maintain as sterile an environment as as possible under the conditions. And of course, that's uh, even more important in a setting in which you're going to be uh, putting an artificial valve in a person. But the top priority to answer your question, is that you need to get to the aorta and the right atrium as quickly as possible. A generous midline incision is, uh, is appropriate uh, under those conditions. You can also skip the use of the electrocautery for most of it because you can get down to the uh, fascia of the chest wall fairly quickly with a knife. And you can always clean up that soft tissue, bleeding or oozing that might be present later uh, once you have ch- achieved stability. Now, you will of course want to open the sternum with the saw expeditiously, but it is worth taking a moment to get your finger underneath the xiphoid sweep it from side to side to push away the pleura, and to do your best to stay in the midline as you saw the sternum. It's not that you can't repair improperly done sternotomy, but they surely will heal better if you can stay in the midline. Once the sternum's open, Again, you do not need to uh, do anything about hemostasis at that particular time. You can wrap the sternal edges with towels, which will both protect them and absorb some bleeding from the uh, sternal edges and the marrow. You should divide the thymus with scissors, clipping larger veins if you can, while avoiding being so hasty that you risk injuring the innominate vein. It's really important to protect that vein if at all possible. It's difficult to repair, and it can be a a significant factor for the patient if it's injured. The pericardium needs to be opened as well, of course, and generally that will be done in the midline. Maybe quickly placing a pericardial suture on each side, maybe just on the right side because you can suspend the left side later. You don't need to tie those. You can clamp them. They should be able to uh, be placed very quickly. It's worth remembering that if the patient has inadequate perfusion, once the pericardium is open, you can perform open cardiac massage at that point. You can also, and should, give some consideration to either defibrillating the heart if, if ventricular fibrillation is ensued, or... Putting temporary pacing wires on if the patient is in a rhythm that is very slow, both of those uh, strategies can be quite useful to regain some degree of hemodynamic stability. Once that, uh, those things are done, uh, you can take maybe one, one deep breath and uh, remember that if you have given the heparin, It may be time to get an ACT, which will let you know whether you're able to go and bypass at this point. You can cannulate without having the ACT back, but you can't go and bypass without having it back. You should cannulate the aorta first uh, for several reasons. Uh, One is that it's a little bit trickier to do, and you don't want to have other cannulas in the way. And also, once the aorta has been cannulated and you have the aortic cannula hooked to the perfusion machine, the perfusionists can give volume out of their primed circuit. And if, as you are opening the atrium to cannulate, you have some blood loss that can be scavenged with the cell saver or the pump suckers the perfusions can give that blood back uh, to the patient through the aortic cannula as well now this is a really important concept to remember purse strings are for taking cannulas out and not putting them in you should cannulate both the aorta and the atrium without putting in purse strings in any urgent situation, and put the purse strings in later. It, the uh, strategy for cannulating the order is to make a small hole that you're gonna be able to put the cannula through. I've always liked using a 15 blade scalpel, although some use a, a, an 11. I like the 15 because it works and it has minimal chance of injuring the back wall of, a, of a, an aorta that might be smaller. It's worth thinking to yourself that you wanna make this aortotomy a touch smaller than the cannula you'll be putting in it because the cannula will stretch the opening uh, as it's inserted. And it's also an important uh, technical concept to understand that if you take the 15 blade and make the small incision you can keep the blade in the aorta and use it as sort of a shoehorn to pull that hole a little bit further open as you push the cannula in and uh, that makes placement of the cannula easier and it lessens the chance of causing a dissection. as soon as it's in you need to have somebody other than yourself to hold the cannula in place while you de-air and connect it to the arterial pump line, that person has to understand that they cannot let that cannula move in or out. They can brace their fingers against the aorta, their hand against the chest wall, and potentially even use both hands uh, if necessary. Turning your attention now to the right atrium, the most expeditious way to get a cannula into the right atrium is to put a vascular clamp on the atrial appendage and cut the tip off above the clamp. The assistant and the surgeon can each grab a side of the cut edge of the appendage. And as the clamp is being taken off, hold the uh, atriotomy open to drop the uh, cannula in. Again, this venous cannula doesn't have to be ideally positioned at that point. You don't necessarily have to put it in so that it goes all the way down into the inferior vena cava. If It's not going in with ease don't uh, overdo it. All you need to do is get something in that right atrium, and then you can go on bypass and further uh, position the cannula later. The way to secure that cannula in place is to put a, a heavy silk tie around the cut edges, just below the cut edge of the atrium, and that will hold the cannula in place. And at that point, of course, you can connect that that atrial cannula to the venous line, and uh, Again, if the ACT has been obtained and is adequate, you can have the perfusionist go and pump. There's one last admonition at this point, and that is to be sure that the perfusionist understands they should drain out slowly, ensuring adequate venous drainage and adequate arterial return through the aortic cannula into the aorta, because it is possible to empty the blood out of the patient and not be able
1: to uh, return it uh, through the aortic cannula. That all is really important to know and obviously it sounds very similar to what we do under normal circumstances for going on with a few exceptions. Obviously the rule for the purse strings taking cannulas out, not putting them in. So cannulas are in, you're on bypass. What should you do now?
0: Your top priority at that point is to assure that the perfusionists are happy with the drainage and the flow. And if... Uh, they declare that they are comfortable with uh, the, their perfusion, uh, with drainage, return, the, the functioning of their, of their uh, machine, etc. It is a time you can come up for air, literally, uh, yourself. And at this time, uh, you can regain control of the, uh, of the environment, making sure that other people on the team are comfortable with where they are at, You can take time now to more securely deal with your cannulas in both uh, the aorta and the atrium. And this is, uh, of course, a good time to put purse strings around the the aortotomy and the atriotomy. The cannulation sutures under those conditions should be uh, placed fairly close to the can, just because you don't want to narrow the aorta, especially in a smaller uh, size aorta. And then you go down the pathway of the uh, usual strategies with using rumel tourniquet uh, to secure them and tie those uh, uh, tourniquets in place uh, around the cannulas uh, to hold them in
1: place. Great. So now that you've stabilized things, you're on, you're on bypass. You've got your aortic cannulas secured more so than just with a hand. What do you do then, even after that? So obviously uh, you're entered
0: a. A period where things were more controlled, more comfortable, and more normal. And uh, it's a good time to review th- things in the room. I think it's appropriate to thank everyone for their capable performance up to that point and uh, acknowledge that we're going to drop back into a more normal mode and a little bit less barking of orders and a little more of a normal uh, conversation for a, a regular case. It's worth reviewing things that might have gotten kind of lost in the shuffle, such as rounding up all of the supplies that uh, might be needed. Uh, it's time to check the uh, activated clotting time again. Consider whether blood might be needed and might need to be administered if some have been lost in, during the rapid entry. It's a time to check to see that the antibiotics uh, were actually given. It's also a time to, to begin to dry up a bit. You can suspend the pericardium more fully. You can look for uh, bleeding venous bleeding sites in the, in the um, thymic uh, dissection perhaps. You can bobe the sternal edges, put hemostatic agents on the marrow if it's oozing and uh, take care of things like that to try to push the environment back towards a more normal one. I also think it's worth thinking about the distinct possibility that sterility had been c- Compromised during that rapid uh, entry. Some of the easiest things one can do would be to change gowns and gloves for the entire team. You could put some more drapes or towels around, perhaps put some more uh, germicidal solutions uh, on the uh, chest wall or the marrow, uh, etc. And um, those maneuvers won't take long and surely might be of some value
1: great after you've confirmed your sterility and and you've taken care of all those other smaller potentially intangible things in the in the heat of the moment of going on do you just proceed with the operation as standard and and kind of where do you go from here in terms of completing the case and closing up is there anything additional at the end that you uh, look for or would need to pay particular attention to
0: So I I think the answer to that is that, in general, you want to uh, get back into your your usual routine, the usual rhythm of the operation. Uh, Everyone in the room would be most comfortable with that, of course. There might be a few small things. uh, Given that our case for discussion was a patient with a tight aortic valve, of course you're going to do an aortic valve replacement. And of all the infectious complications that could happen, the most dire would be early prosthetic valve endocarditis. And I learned a trick from uh, Tyrone David long ago, uh, at least in the case of a tissue valve. If you're putting a tissue valve in a patient with endocarditis, he advised to not wash the glutaraldehyde off of the valve you could consider following that strategy if you were going to use a tissue valve which are more common than mechanical valves these days in in this setting where you could say perhaps cerulea really is still compromised to a degree so will not wash the valve the idea of washing the glutaraldehyde off is that it's a toxic agent you might could rinse it once and let there be some glutaraldehyde still in the sewing ring so that's a an example of a small thing that could uh, maybe still be in your plan for this unusual start to the operation. Shifting gears a bit, I think that uh, it's uh, worth not only thanking everyone in the team for what will likely have been expert help, but also to perhaps debrief a little bit, even early on, and just have a conversation at appropriate times in, in the ebb and flow of the case about what, if anything, could have been done better in this uh, critical situation. And you will want to review it more thoroughly later, but sometimes just asking people for their thoughts once you are back into your regular routine a regular rhythm of the operation. Sometimes people will have thoughts and ideas and recollections Close to the time that this process had happened, that will be more accurate and more complete than they will, at, you know, five hours later or the next day or the next week.
1: Great, and then so, at the end of the case, assuming everything else goes as planned and no no further uh, excitement, when you leave the operating room, do you talk to the family about this and disclose what happened?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I myself have always wanted to talk to the family personally, no matter what, whether things went ideally or things went far from ideally. But either way, I, uh, I've always wanted to talk with the family. And my practice evolved from the earliest days of my faculty tenure to uh, later times. Uh, wanted to involve the, the uh, resident in that uh, discussion as well. And there's obviously that's good for the residents to learn, but it's also practical because, number one, if you wait for the resident to have the discussion, it means that the patient has arrived in the ICU stable and you don't have to have two discussions with the family if one of them uh, happened early and then you have some additional period of instability and you have to go back and talk to them about that. But more to the specifics of your Pertinent question. I do think that the family should be told that this period of instability occurred. That'll be easier to tell them that if you've already warned them ahead of time that it might have happened. They'll be prepared to hear that. But I think it's fair to be as optimistic as you feel is warranted when you describe the situation that you were there and you were able to uh, get the patient on bypass quickly. But as is true with every uh, family conversation after a cardiac operation, there's always some unknowns and maybe those unknowns are a little bit more prominent and need to be discussed a little more in detail if this uh, scenario has happened. I do think it's fair to not over-dramatize the scenario and, um, you know, you walk a fine line between creating anxiety on one hand that's not necessary versus being overly superficial in your conversations but one of the lines that I've liked to use in that situation is to say these kinds of things for us as cardiac surgeons are sort of all in a day's work we're always prepared for these situations we prep our teams for them we have great people we work with and it's uh, not Common that we have to uh, uh, crash on the bypass in this way, but it's certainly not unheard of. And our team ch- trains for this, we're prepared for it, we're good at doing it. And um, I, I think sometimes uh, describing what happened, utilizing terms and phrases like that can be comforting to the patients while still letting them understand that there may be some unknowns uh, that will have to be sorted out uh, in the ensuing uh,
1: 24 hours. That's a, that's a great point. Thanks for talking through that. I think you raise a, a really good point here at the end, too, in that it doesn't happen often and that we do need to be prepared for them. So almost every cardiac surgery we do now it has to have a sternotomy, and we're used to doing those steps in a pretty routine fashion and not quite as Urgently as crashing on, but anything you do in these situations after the fact to either prepare yourself again for a future case or what are the kind of main points that you reflect upon? Obviously, the uh, purse strings are required for decannulating and not cannulating. Seems like one of those types of thoughts. Any further insight or advice you have?
0: I think the main thing I I would urge everybody to do fairly routinely, but even more importantly in, in cases that had some uh, something unusual about them or something uh, that required uh, this type of uh, urgent uh, entry into the chest is to, at some even later time, for instance, the next day or, uh, uh, or two, is to review the situation, preferably with at least your uh, primary surgical colleague meaning specifically who the, the resident usually uh, would be in the uh, been in the operating room with you or perhaps other people on the team I personally over the years developed the habit of of writing out something about almost every case I did to make notes about what I might have done different or might have learned and, and I was Pretty surprised, even decades into my practice how often I would think of something that either I wanted to remember or think about or look up or talk to a colleague about or that I maybe hadn't explained to the uh, younger members of my team in the earlier discussions. And so I, I found that was a way to have an ongoing conversation that could be uh, educational for all concerned. And of course, I don't think anyone ever becomes so completely senior or masterful to not uh, benefit occasionally from talking about cases with trusted advisor or friend or colleague or peer. Sometimes just a conversation will stimulate more discussion and pretty frequently someone that has that that you have that kind of relationship with will have a point or two that's worth uh, listening to. And in summary, I think we all at every stage of our careers need to be constantly learning, constantly reviewing, constantly uh, seeking out reflection and advice from not just ourselves and our team, but even
1: our friends and colleagues. Great. Well, thank you so much for your insight on this topic and really just on uh, practice of surgery as a whole. And we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
0: My pleasure.